0: Welcome to Episode 5 of The Drift, a Starfinder podcast which is presented by NerdsonEarth.com. This week we are joined by Amanda hammond Koontz, the Development Coordinator for Pathfinder and Starfinder at Paizo. We will hear more about the development process on Starfinder, her work on the third adventure path for Starfinder, and inclusion in gaming. Well, today we
1: are very honored to have Amanda join us, as she's going to talk to us about Paizo, about Starfinder, and we'll hear some more about her story. So, uh, Amanda, thanks so much for being a part of the Drift.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
1: So I would love to hear how you came to play role-playing games, because I, I think it's always interesting to hear everybody's story. We all kind of come to this... This hobby or in your case career in a different way. So can you share a little bit about how you became involved in role-playing games?
2: Sure, sure. Um, So my nerd origin story, as it were, uh, goes back a very, very long time, um, almost to the earliest memories that I have. Um, I remember playing uh, video games when I was in first grade with with my best friend and when we were little girls. And um, when I was in third grade, my mom actually read uh, Tolkien's The Hobbit to me. And that was a thing that took place over probably six months or so. And then later on, she read The Lord of the Rings to me as well. And I just became really fascinated with um, the fantasy world, uh, you know, that is now sort of the default type of setting for for role-playing games. And um, I just was uh, very taken with the imaginative aspect of it and the different types of characters and learning about creatures that, uh, you know, didn't exist in real life. Um, it sort of was mind-boggling to me that, that, was, uh, that those were type of stories that you could tell, uh, and that, uh, you know, you could build a whole new world based off of just those type of things. So, um, I didn't start playing role-playing games until I was about 15 years old. Um, and that was, uh, of course I was in high school and, uh, my boyfriend at the time who is now my husband, uh, had been in role-playing games with, uh, his stepbrothers and their friends since they were fairly little. And I always played the same games right alongside them and, uh, you know, one by one sort of through him, they were all like, you should ask her if she wants to play. Um, and I totally did. And I remember sitting in my friend's basement going through all of his role-playing books. And he is a person who um, would buy like every type of book that's available for a game that he really got into. <laughs> yeah. So he had a whole bunch of third edition and 3.5 role-playing D and D books and uh, a whole bunch of other systems as well. He was he was very into uh, the Ravenloft setting. He has literally everything ever published for Ravenloft. He's very into Dragonlance. He had a whole bunch of Dragonlance um, books. And I just remember sitting there with him and wanting to play a magic user and reading through all of uh, the different uh, supplements that were available and creating a character and finally thinking, wow, this is a game made for people just like me who want to be able to create these own, their own stories as well as, uh, you know, read them and sort of experience them, um, you know, as a, as a bystander. So I think just from that, from that time on, I just uh, joined pretty much every game I had an opportunity to join and started coming up with my own ideas. And I got really into D10 games when I was in college. I played a lot of uh, white wolf uh, vampire and changeling and mage games and uh, really just kind of went from there. It was just something I fell in love with almost immediately.
1: That's really, that's really awesome. So Today, do you still, uh, are you still a magic user first and foremost?
2: Uh, you know, I kind of uh, try to be a little more um, varied with what I play. Uh, the first several years, I've always played magic users. I really liked the, the Battle Mage 3.5 base class, if you remember that. Um, yeah, yeah. In the Elementalist, yeah, Prestige class was like really cool because it's like, oh, I could be, you know, uh, a cold mage or I could be a fire mage. And I like to, to mess with the different types of options for that. But yeah. Um, after I sort of got out of that like initial niche, I started to want to do things I had never done before. So I started making uh, more melee characters uh, very infrequently, but I would make you know healing characters or rangers and divine magic users um, and that sort of thing. So I really sort of felt like, okay, now I know how to do this type of character concept. And I want to do something I haven't done before.
1: It's one of the, the coolest things about uh, role-playing games is that you can really spend some time and go... Uh, across the diversity of different kinds of characters and spectrum yeah yeah I actually i'm leading a game with uh I have a nephew and two nieces and they're sort of playing for their first time and um one of their characters almost died in the last adventure and uh oh wow it was uh, yeah, I was nervous about how that was going to be received, but uh, her response was, well, I'll just play something different.
2: Yep. <laughs> yeah. That's how I always was, too. If I had a character that would die, it's like, well, I get to make this other type of character that I didn't think I'd get to make, but now there's an opening.
1: <laughs> so how did you go from being an enthusiast and and somebody that loved games to, to working in the role you're at at Paizo now?
2: So uh, I uh, went to college at Eastern Michigan University, which is... Uh, right outside of Ann Arbor in the Detroit area. And, um, we decided, uh, early on that we wanted to go to Gen Con. So, um, there's sort of a long backstory, but my husband had wanted to go to Gen Con, you know, several years before that, I think the last year it was in Milwaukee. And, um, for various reasons, it didn't work out with that group, um, to be able to make it out there. And so, there was just one day, you know, in the spring, um, when everybody was sitting around and saying, We should actually go to Gen Con, we should we should do it, we should make it happen. Um, and uh, and we did. So two thousand and six was the first year uh that we oh, was it two thousand six, two thousand five. Uh it was two thousand five was actually the first year. Six, sorry. He's, I'm getting corrected. Six. <laughs> <laughs> he can hear me. Um was 2006 was actually the first year that we went to Gen Con. And we just went as fans and we were in college. And uh, it was such a great experience because I got to, you know, really interact one-on-one with, uh, with authors. And, you know, Gen Con uh, is certainly not, as, back then was certainly not as huge as it is now, um, but was still a very big convention for somebody who wasn't used to that size of an event. Um, but as big as it was, it felt like, uh, sort of like, you know, just like a home for fandom because you could interact one-on-one with, you know, people whose names that you've seen in books for, for years on end and people who you've always sort of looked up to uh, as, uh, you know, creatives that you admire and people who are making the things that you love and being able to, you know, go in on a one-on-one basis at Gen Con and meet them at the booth and go to seminars and listen to their advice and their stories uh, was, really just, um, it was really just a great experience for, for a young creative person um, to be exposed to. So uh, we kept going back every year, Um, we kept going back to Genicon every year, and somewhere in the realm of 2011, uh, I was uh, working as a newspaper reporter, and I had decided that I wanted to change careers, it was just not something I wanted to continue to do, and I had a lot of editing and writing skills, and been playing role-playing games, you know, forever, and interacting uh, at Gen Con with the folks who do those things professionally. And I thought, you know, I should try to do something that I'll really enjoy. I should try to do something that I know I'll love. Um, maybe I can get into editing of, of role-playing games. And uh, I ended up meeting, oh, talking with several folks that year about potentially doing some freelance. And getting a, a sense of, you know, what even work was available at that point. And uh, I ended up talking to Wes Schneider from Paizo. Uh, asking him, you know, do you need uh, freelance editors? You know, I have this, this set of skills. Here's my business card. You know, I handed him my business card for my day job um, at the newspaper. And at the time, Paizo was not using freelance editors. But without missing a beat, Wes says, well, we're not using editors, but uh, we're not using freelance editors. But what would you think about design? And I'm thinking in the back of my head, oh my gosh, I don't know how to design a role playing game. I don't know what I'm (laughs) doing at all. But, you know, being somebody who wanted to put themselves out there professionally, I said, sure, I'd give it a shot. (laughs) Uh, So Wes and I struck up uh, an email relationship and conversation uh, in which, you know, he asked me to pitch him some things. And uh, in the interim, I met folks like Wolfgang Bauer from Kobold Press, uh, who had a very similar reaction. Um, who actually did need freelance editors and was able to build up freelance work uh from there and really it all just kind of snowballed and ended up getting hired full time at Paizo. Uh I started in two
1: thousand fifteen. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. So so you go to a con, you you make connections, you just keep doing what you enjoy and then make the decision to make the jump into a a to new career.
2: Yeah. I mean, it was always, it was always a matter of like, well, that's, that's never going to happen. Like, you know, it's nice that I have some um, potential lines out there for freelance work, but I probably won't get much. And then when I started getting some, it's like, well, I probably won't get too much more. I probably won't end up writing more than, you know, a few things here or there. Uh, Then I end up being the lead developer on hardcover for Cobalt Press. And then it's like, well, but there are fewer professional game designers then there are astronauts uh, i probably won't ever get offered a full time job at piso and then the developer position at piso came open and i applied for it really only because i figured well i need to at least say i tried when people ask me why you know i didn't uh, <laughs> get hired uh, and then end up getting hired and uh, and you know now i'm development coordinator so it is it was never an expected path but it worked out
1: Well, I I think it's really uh, incredible that uh, you you took a chance and it has worked out. Yeah. So I would love to hear a little bit about how how does uh, development work behind the scenes at Paizo? Um, Sure. In in particular, as we we talk about Starfinder, it has become... So this past weekend was a free... Free RPG uh, day, yes. Yeah, free RPG day. And at my local shop, uh, Starfinder was definitely... Uh, one of the buzzes, everybody's ready for the game to come out in August and oh, wants yeah. to, to dig in and to play. So so walk me through, how how does the development process for something like that work? How did you guys start and what were some of the, uh, the hurdles as you went through it?
2: Sure. So do you want to hear about the development design of Starfinder itself or do you just want to hear more about the general development process for just any product that we put out?
1: Yeah. So I would love to hear about Starfinder and, and just how that process worked.
2: Okay. Yeah. So... Starfinder uh, was born from an idea uh, of Eric Mona, our publisher, and um, I think that this is all stuff that Eric has talked about at different conventions. We are looking at uh, you know what products are we going to put out and what options do we have in front of us, and uh, something that Eric suggested was uh, was Pathfinder in space, Starfinder, and that was really just the the core kernel of the idea and uh, that really turned into people getting excited at the office about what we might be able to produce based around that idea. Um, And then we found ourselves needing to produce a whole game in about a year. Um, So, (laughs) you know, uh, we're definitely ambitious. It was a huge, huge task, but um, essentially the way it worked was that uh, there was a Starfinder core design team. Um, It started out with our Pathfinder design team, um, but of course they couldn't, you know, um, they're producing hardcovers of their own. they um, couldn't put all their resources, you know, into creating uh, a new game that we had put on the schedule. So uh, they did some preliminary work with folks. Um, Then we added people to the the core design team. I got added myself uh, after the initial classes were designed, uh, but really there was nothing else that existed for the game yet. Um, And then, you know, everybody sort of had their own their own task. And then, uh, for example, we, our tactical rules chapter is uh, the second largest chapter of the whole book behind equipment. That started off with uh, Owen Casey Stevens looking at the current Pathfinder rules and seeing what things we might need to add um, to make them more appropriate for science fantasy. Um, he did some tweaks and uh, had we had a lot of discussions centered around that, weekly discussions uh, at one point, although those did taper off you know, later as we got more work done. Um, but, uh, then that chapter got shipped over to me and I did, uh, quite a bit of design, uh, quite a bit of development and, you know, asked a lot of questions. We stress test a lot of things. Um, we got opinions from other people, uh, in other departments of the company. And, uh, that's really the process that's really, it's pretty messy. It's a lot of back and forth. It's a lot of collaboration. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, the book's got to get out. Sure. On time, so yeah, so yeah, you know, we we use resources that we had at hand to go through that uh, that big, long, you know, messy design process. So,
1: so how much of it was done before you all made an announcement, and how much of it was you made an announcement that it was coming, and now you had a deadline to meet?
2: Oh my goodness! Um, so let's see, we announced this what at Pizocon last year, uh, I believe that's correct. So we
1: yep.
2: we had a little bit of the initial stuff done, but, uh, the majority of the work took place in the fall, uh, and then in the spring, um, well, fall, winter, and then in the spring before we shifted of this year. So, I mean, we had the concept in place. Um, we had some initial, uh, art that, you know, had been ordered, um, and concepted, um, from artists, I think we had Runko Truso on board at that point, although I'm not sure he might've came on right after that. But as far as the actual meat of the design of the game, there was very little done at that point. And so we all, uh, in some ways it was good to know where we stood because it's like, okay, this has to get out, you know, in time for Gen Con. But in, in other ways, it's, it is scary knowing you've got a whole system that needs to be put together and, you know, there's no wiggle room. It just needs to get done.
1: Yeah, d- to test it and to have all of it... Uh... Uh, have it all work. I'm, I'm sure it was a daunting task.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. It definitely was. Um, which is why I'm glad that you know the design team sort of worked in the fluid way that we did, um, as far as you know our day to day actual jobs, but also just the the folks that we had working on it. Um, we were able to sort of just look at the project as you know the months were going by and saying, okay, how much more needs to be done, and making determinations of you know whether we wanted to pull more folks in or whether uh, we needed somebody to shift gears, and uh, and James sort of really coordinated um, most of that and made made all of that sort of come
1: together. It just seems like an incredible effort to, and it had to be pretty rewarding when you guys finally shipped it.
2: Oh gosh, yeah, it was really great. The and you know the the funny thing about a brand new game is that uh, you know it is a brand new game and it's mostly untested, you know, by the public. So it's not um, it's based on Pathfinder rules, but there are a lot of things that were designed specifically for this game and for the system. And so uh, we were, you know, poking and pulling at things and making pretty significant changes to the rules as a whole right up until the book shipped. Um, So it was just this monumental task by all of our editors, all of our developers, um, everybody downstairs, you know, made a huge effort to make this thing happen and the book wouldn't exist if it wasn't for them. Um, And then as the book comes out, you know, our, our warehouse folks, our customer service folks, everybody... Um, everybody, you know, in the company will be part of the team to make this thing happen.
1: Sure. With an effort this large, and uh, as we've sort of talked about, demand seems to be, it's going to be really high. There's definitely a lot of interest.
2: Yeah. I think we're still grappling with the fact that, you know, our pre-orders are just really high. The hype is really high. Um, You know, at Gen Con, we expect that this thing will be uh, you know, just really anticipated. And so we're all trying to wrap our heads around the fact of, you know, well, we're going to be asked all these questions. And, uh, you know, what can we do to make people um, as excited and, you know, as fulfilled about this when they get the book in their hands as we are excited to have worked on it.
1: Yeah, as Gen Con, especially, it, it seemed like you, you all put out a certain number of slots to play games and and yep. to, to be a part of it. And I, they went so fast. They
2: did. Yeah, those slots, I believe, went live over PaizoCon. And so most of us were... Uh, you know, working PaizoCon and running our own games and doing our own events. And I heard that they sold out within an hour.
1: Yeah, every everything I've read and seen seems to be that that's totally believable. There are a lot, a lot more people that want new <laughs> yeah. games than uh, their availability.
2: Yeah, there were people who were coming up and asking me, are you going to open up any more Starfinder slots for Gen Con? And it's like, I didn't even realize that they were <laughs> already gone. But, you know, right. we'll see what we can do.
1: Well, so as you talked about the game development, I, I, I'm curious to know for you, as somebody who who played Pathfinder, what uh, what are some of the tweaks that really stand out to you in the rule set? We're we're seeing some of them as um as more and more you guys are yeah doing a great job of putting a lot of stuff up on your blog and and that kind of thing. So I'd love to hear from sort of an insider perspective. What are some of the tweaks that you find to be uh, yeah. most interesting?
2: Sure. Um. So. I'll I'll talk about system stuff first, and then maybe we'll get a little bit into the classes because the classes are, of course, all new and uh, you know totally sci-fi based, and they're not you know just ported over versions of Pathfinder classes. They uh, they're unique. Um, But system-wide, one of the biggest things that uh, that we try to do, and that I think um, serves the system uh, really well for usability, is that we um, made party balance be less of a concern as far as what types of characters that you have in your party. Um, You don't necessarily, in Pathfinder, a lot of people will want to coordinate, and they'll say, you know, we we need a healer, and we need a tank, and we need, you know, a magic user, and, you know, we got to have enough damage per round, and all of that stuff. Um, In Starfinder, those things are not necessarily as important to having an effective party. And the reason, um, one of the ways that we accomplished that was that we changed the death and dying and hit point system. So, have you gotten your hands on First Contact at all?
1: I did. Yeah, I got my copy okay. Saturday, and I've kind of read through it.
2: Sure. So you probably noticed that uh, in the line where there would normally be HP, that there is something called SP and HP and RP, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. So that is the system that I'm referring to. Um, SP are stamina points, uh, and that is a pool um, of uh, of stamina. Really, that's uh, your pool of sort of gumption that you have um, that you take damage out of first. Um, before you actually take hit point damage, and it you know represents your character, uh, you know sort of like taking some some hits to uh, to their psyche maybe, or uh, you know getting sort of dinged in the armor but not getting substantially physically injured, um, and that is a pool that uh, is calculated separately from hit points uh, that you're getting every level, and then you have your normal hit points, which is your, your bodily health and your constitution, and then we have a new pool um, of resolve points. And your resolve points are going to be significantly smaller. That pool is going to be significantly smaller than stamina or uh, hit points. But uh, that gives you uh, abilities that um, are going to be able to simulate things like, you know, using healing and things like that. Like you can use uh, a resolve point to automatically stable your, stabilize yourself once you've hit zero hit points. Uh, you can use a resolve point to um, gain a hit point back and stand back up and get back into the fight. Um, there are a number of classes that give you uh, abilities that you uh, need to use a resolve point for. So the envoy, sort of our, our space bard type of class, they have an ability that lets them spend a resolve point to uh, give an ally stamina points back. So, um, okay. yeah. So another thing you can do is you can spend a resolve point to rest for 10 minutes and get all of your stamina back. So there are all of these different mechanisms that are built into the game that allow you to, um, strategize a little more about how you're going to approach a challenge or a situation or how you're going to survive a fight, but they aren't necessarily rooted in that classic, you know, we have to have the healer and we have to have healing potions or, you know, a wand of cure light wounds or something like that. Um, it's really more about uh, emboldening and um, giving the players agency to sort of decide all the different things that they could do to solve those problems.
1: Well, it sounds like it then lets your, your party, your group sort of take on a more diverse field. And sometimes yeah. you, you get in a Pathfinder game where everybody's trying to, like yeah. you said, sort of metagame.
2: Yeah, we really wanted to give people incentive um, to play the kind of characters that they thought were cool. Um, we want you to be able to play your space opera hero as opposed to, well, just the the party healer or the party fighter or something like that. Um, that is fun, and there's nothing wrong with that approach whatsoever. Um, but for space fantasy and science fantasy, we really uh, wanted to give the sense of you know the crew of a starship that is uh out adventuring and using their own wiles to to solve problems and go on adventures as opposed to um you know what more normal traditional fantasy would do.
1: Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So one of the things we haven't seen a lot yet about is uh is ships. Sure. uh, uh so one of the questions somebody on uh Twitter asked was will your ship have a level up mechanic in the same way that characters do? So I would uh I would love to just hear a little bit more about it's it seems like for a lot of um of Starfinder maybe ships are going to be an important part almost of the of your crew not just yeah. where your crew meets so yeah absolutely I, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about that
2: sure sure um so yeah in Starfinder um, because I mentioned that we wanted to create you know the sense of a of the crew of a starship uh, going out and, and having adventures in the wilds of space, uh, we really double down on that concept um, with the way that we present uh, and use starships in the game. So your starship uh, is basically like another member of the party. Your starship uh, has an AI on it that uh, can interact with your crew uh, in various different ways. It's kind of like uh, you know a smart version a smarter version of Siri, like an advanced uh, intelligent version of Siri. Uh, A lot of that's going to be sort of up to the GM and how the GM, you know, wants that to work. But, you know, this is an AI that can, uh, you know, advise your crew members or your captain, um, provide information based on, uh, you know, computer's checks that you're using, um, you know, uh, and basically sort of like uh, banter back and forth with the crew members, you know, as the party finds that fun. Um, one really interesting thing is that uh, the Starship economy takes place outside of the larger games economy. So when we're talking about you know uh, buying different pieces of equipment and armor and uh, weapons and things like that, uh, Starship sort of exists outside of that. And um, in our adventure path, for example, and probably most of our adventures for Starfinder going forward, you're going to come into... Uh, the use of your starship through the um, events of the actual game and through the events of the narrative so there probably will be situations where you know folks will uh, party members will want to buy a starship and you can do that um, but it's really we're really encouraging GMs to make uh, finding a starship and using a starship part of uh, part of the narrative and part of the game and um, you know an integrated part of the party and another way that we accomplish that is by, having star- your starship level up uh, with the party. And so uh, based on your average party level, your starship will continue to increase in level so that there's not, you don't have to sink a whole bunch of credits into leveling up your starship or anything like that. Your starship is just, uh, you know, going to be available for expansion as you become more powerful and influential and uh, as your, your personal wealth
1: increases. That That's a great hook in terms of like you're saying for for game masters to, to use that as, As part of an intro level of a party, of you've got to find a ship, you've got to become a a crew together. I think that's really awesome.
2: Yeah, and we sort of tried to reinforce that with some of the backstories of our iconic, our Starfinder iconic characters. Um, The first Starfinder iconic character that we revealed was Navasi, the iconic envoy. um, You know, who's a a human. she's a human envoy and her theme is, uh, outlaw. And so there's uh, a backstory about sort of how she, um, you know, came to, uh, be a runner of her own crew and she has a starship and Navasi's starship is sort of the iconic starship, uh, you know, for, for Starfinder. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of cool information and illustrations and, and minis even that will be out, uh, about the different styles of starships and, uh, each starship has a stat block and, uh, you know, that section will tell you the different customizations and things that you can do uh, to your starship. So we really wanted to make that like a, a living and breathing part of the game because it is so core to that concept of science fantasy.
1: It is, uh, you know, you, you can think about all the, the iconic science fantasy um, ships are, are a huge part of it.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, you think about pretty much any property that's uh, space opera or science fantasy or science fiction even out there and, you you know, there is some sort of iconic spaceship or starship pretty much in everything. So we felt like that was really important.
1: So as you're working on something like Starfinder, what fuels you creatively? What what helps you uh, get ideas, that that kind of thing? I know we'll, we'll talk some about the adventure path. It's the first one out and you, you've written the third chapter of it. I have, yeah. Yeah. So what are some of the things that you're kind of taking in to kind of help fuel your creative energy.
2: Oh, sure. So it really helped uh, that I've really liked sci-fi and science fantasy for a long time. I mean, when I was uh, fairly little, I remember my dad taking us to the remastered um, prequel, Star Wars prequels, uh, episode four, five, and six, and just being really fascinated by the world that's presented in those movies and really interested in the different types of aliens and the different ecologies and the planets and... Uh, just the different types of stories that could be told there, and so pretty much from then on, I became a really big Star Wars fan, and uh, really was into Knights of the Old Republic when that game was out, and played hours and hours of it. <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, really liked a lot of other science fantasy type of properties like. Uh, Firefly and the movie Serenity was uh, a thing that I was really into um, when those were out, and uh, Star Wars Tales, the comic series, uh, I, I really liked, and really liked the expanded universe of Star Wars. Uh, with all of those things, you know that uh, that came out and um, was connected to that franchise. So it helped that I knew a lot and had a base of a base of knowledge about uh, you know what the genre consisted of and what I thought was cool and what was cool to to other folks and things that I wanted to do that were outside of a fantasy. But, you know, when I first started working on Starfinder, it was pretty tough to sort of break out of just that mode of thinking um, that's, you know, outside of, you know, your traditional sword and sorcery uh, fantasy. And I kind of struggled a little bit with, wow, I haven't written anything, you know, outside of, you know, traditional fantasy settings for a long time. Um, and, you know, certainly, you know, not since I was hired at Paizo. So I actually, uh, my first uh, my first real encounter with Starfinder was, I think, right before I was moved on to the design team officially. Um, but it was an assignment to write 10,000 words of new spells for Starfinder. And the directive was, well, we're going to be porting over some spells from Pathfinder, and uh, you know we're going to be tweaking them as necessary, but we want this to be new spells that are specific to the Starfinder universe. You know that would be cool to cast. Uh, you know in a in a space pathfinder type of setting. And I just sat down and uh, for probably twenty or thirty minutes and just made a huge list of what I thought would be cool. And you know that really helped me to break out of out of the mentality of greening for only sword and sorcery. And then once I sort of turned that spigot on, uh, it, it didn't stop and it was able to, you know, think a lot more, um, and get more acclimated to science fantasy. Um, but, you know, it was pretty tough, even as somebody who's a fan of this stuff for, for a long time, um, until you sort of, you know, break out of what you're used to. It, It is a, it is a tough thing.
1: I can imagine if I was given that task and sat down to make a list, I would go back and go, well, that's just another version of this spell.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And then, so some combination of that basically creative exercise before I, I started writing those bows and, and then being moved on to the design team and, you know, being in day-to-day conversations with, you know, Owen Stevens and Rob McCreary and Jason Keeley and James Sutter, uh, you know, and, and the folks that were, um, you know, working on the game, you know, every single day, like I was, uh, that really sort of helped to orient my brain around, okay, how are we going to make this its own thing that's cool you know, that's, um, fantasy and futuristic and, you know, like not a carbon copy of something else.
1: So, so as you all were writing it, how often were you play testing things?
2: Um, we play tested things pretty frequently. Um, we had, Oh gosh, I don't even want to say how many, but I know we had uh, quite a few internal playtests just among the design team in which, you know, we would create characters at different levels and we'd have somebody just run an encounter and, um, you know, poke at things and see, you know, what made sense and uh, what wasn't working the way we really expected. Um, We had, what I really think helped us a lot um, as far as design was having playtests that were uh, across uh, all areas of the company. So we ended up pulling in folks who weren't working on Starfinder who were who were downstairs, um, but we also ended up pulling in folks uh, from other areas of the company, including customer service uh, and, you know, web and community and just all over uh, the warehouse and places like that. And, uh, you know, saying, uh, tell us what you like about this game. Tell us what you don't like about this game. Tell us what doesn't make sense. Tell us what Uh, you know, is frustrating to you. And just getting the feedback for that was really helpful.
1: Yeah, I bet. To to get new eyes on it and to...
2: Right, because we're living in it every single day. And, uh, you know, it makes sense to us. But once it gets out of sort of that cocoon of hive mind... Uh, not everything is not every idea is equal,
1: and and testing it is the way you you know you you make it better and better.
2: Yeah, totally.
1: So you have written the uh, third part of the adventure path. It's called Splintered Worlds. Can you can you talk some about it? Obviously, I don't want you to give away spoilers for the first two parts, but
2: yeah, I totally can. Um, so uh, following in the the tradition of. Uh, You know, this being a very exploratory AP in which you see a lot of different parts of the Starfinder universe and you're exposed to a lot of the different, uh, you know, game mechanics and systems that we've included and updated and created uh, for this game. Um, My adventure path uh, begins in an asteroid field called the Diaspora. Okay. And uh, so you need to explore around there and uh, you have an objective in which you're looking for uh, a cult of the Devourer. And the Devourer is a, a sort of a new uh, entropy type of uh, of God that uh, you know, of course, attracts cultists by the horde throughout the universe, and uh, you know, for various reasons that uh, you know, you'll find out throughout the adventure path. You're looking for this cult, and you think that this cult has uh, has answers that uh, that you need, and you're you're tasked with sort of tracking down uh, what they know and what they're going to do with what they know. Uh, And and you end up finding them. Uh, You end up finding their base in in the asteroid, but uh, things are not exactly as planned and you have to uh, navigate around this creepy abandoned cultist base and, uh, you know, a few things happen here and there and you uh, end up going to EOX, the undead planet, and interacting with, yeah, uh, a lot of really colorful NPCs and uh, having to try to figure out what exactly is going on. And, uh, you know, there's a really, there's a really big showdown, uh, with a pretty powerful undead character. That's actually a conversion of a Pathfinder character at the end that I, I hope will be be pretty fun for
1: folks. Ah, so that is uh, that's definitely interesting to see then. Yeah. Yeah. So, so as you're writing that, how does it, um, as you're developing, you obviously are picking up from the end of someone else's adventure path. How, uh, how difficult or challenging do you find that to be?
2: Um, so I have written adventure paths in the past. And so I'm familiar with the process. Um, and really the most efficient thing to do is talk to the person who's writing the volume uh, right before you, yours. And in this case for me, that was John Compton who's writing uh Starfinder adventure path number two. And so John and I sort of talked a little bit about what was in his adventure path. And he sent me his text after he was done with it. And, uh, and, and I read it and sort of, uh, we had a few back and forth conversations about stitching together the end of his adventure path and the beginning of mine. Um, And so uh, really once you sort of fit those early pieces on into the, the continuity of the adventure path um, you're pretty free to sort of create along the outline of, of the adventure path as Rob McCreary had outlined it um, without really worrying too much about affecting the previous adventure path or the next adventure path. Um, and then just kind of ending it, you know, where the, the outline for the whole adventure path, uh, you know, gives you the the directive to end the story. And, uh, you know, then I'll be talking to uh, the other folks who are writing the next volumes and sort of making sure that all of that makes sense. Um, one of the most helpful things about this process is that, uh, especially for the early volumes, um, the writers are internal. So it's as easy as yeah. walking up to John at his desk and saying, hey, John, what did you mean by this? Or, you know, you there's this character in your adventure path. Um, what would you think about them showing back up or, you know, something along those lines? So it's a, it's a fun collaborative process.
1: Well, uh, before we close, I did want to talk to you. You have an essay in a book called um, The Cobalt Press Guide to Game Mastering, where you talk about inclusion in gaming. Yeah. And I, I wanted to, to touch base I am um, so I've come back to role playing games uh, in the last couple years from after having been away for I don't know 15 or so. Mm-hmm. And um and and I've been reading lots of things about game mastering, I've been participating in lots of events at game shops and that kind of thing. And um and I think what you talk about in terms of inclusion in role playing games is really huge. Yeah. And uh, and is a needed thing in the community. Um I'm on lots of Facebook groups where you hear horror stories, <laughs> and uh, and it, it, it sort of breaks my heart a little bit to see there are people that desperately want to play role-playing games but keep running into to some of those things. So I wanted to just kind of talk to you a little bit about why you wrote that essay and, and why you think that's important for the, the gaming community to think about.
2: Sure. Yeah. Um, so this is something that, you know, is obviously a very personal topic to myself um, because uh, for a long time I was uh, the only woman playing um, role-playing games in, in my group of friends. And, uh, you know, that changed uh, a little bit later on, but, you know, I was also very young at the time as well. And so uh, I've also heard a lot of those horror stories that I'm sure that you've, uh, that you mentioned there in, in various, you know, social media groups and things like that. And, uh, you know, I've, I've also always been very cognizant of the fact that, uh, you know, there are not a lot of uh, folks from marginalized backgrounds that are uh, writing and creating in the tabletop industry. Um, you know, the, mm-hmm. the industry sort of breaking out, but a lot of the folks who've been around the longest uh, are very homogenous in their personal backgrounds, Um and so uh, I spend a lot of time at various conventions, um, talking to uh, gamers, you know, from from various other marginalized backgrounds, yeah, you know, other women, uh, queer folks, trans folks, people of color, uh, and things like that. And I hear uh, I hear a lot of things about, you know, how they've not felt welcome at the table before or why they've been turned off by a certain group or, you know, why a certain games organized play system has not been very friendly to them. And, you know, of course I can understand that because I've had those types of experiences as well. Um, You know, I've certainly had folks who feel like that I don't belong at the table or people who've outright said to my face that they would never let me, you know, sit at the table because they don't want to play with girls, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So uh I really felt that in a game that was about game mastering, you're always gonna have folks who who believe what they believe and you know are never gonna change. And those are the folks that, you know, if you're you know from any sort of marginalized background, you want to avoid like the plague when you're running games. But that the vast majority of people who are running games, you know, uh they want to do the right thing. They know that games are about having fun. They know that games are, you know, for everybody. That they're an escape for, you know, anybody, regardless of the way that they grew up, or the color of their skin, or their gender, um, or you know, anything like that. So I really felt like the book needed, um, needed to hear from a voice who is encouraging people that might have thought about it in the past, or maybe they haven't thought about it in the past, but reminding them that, uh, you know, when you're the game master not only are you responsible for for running the game and, you know, putting together something that makes sense, you know, from a narrative standpoint and adjudicating all of the rules, but you're also responsible for, uh, you know, folks feeling like they're welcome at your table and for folks feeling like, you know, they're on an equal playing ground, they're not going to have to deal with, you know, any sort of uh, microaggression comments or actual aggressive comments or anything like that. They're not going to feel anxious or, you know, that they're just not welcome. So... I started thinking back about a lot of those types of experiences that I've had and conversations I've had with other folks and thinking about, you know, what do I do at the table? I used to play a lot of organized play before I was hired. And, you know, I saw some some pretty nasty stuff go down. And, uh, you know, I've spoken a lot about inclusion and in gaming in the past at various conventions, including Gen Con. And, uh, you know, just put together sort of a guide for anybody who just wants to keep that in mind and they want their players to feel safe and sort of guidelines about, well, what happens when, you know, something does happen at the table and something will, you know, if you have ever, you know, played, played a game and, you know, you've said, well, none of my games have ever have ever had that issue. The odds are that, that you're wrong and you're just, you know, not actually contributing to helping the situation by, um, you know, not listening to folks when they bring things up or not noticing things when they do happen. So I felt like it was important to have that in there. And, uh, I hope that it's helpful for, for folks who really do want to to do the right thing and make sure everybody has fun together.
1: Well, and I, one of the things that role playing games is great for w- at its best is that it, it empowers us to have empathy for people that are, um, not like us in different ways, you know? And, and I think it is, um, it's something that really can get lost in, um, in the old school, older crowd, where uh, like you said, the the idea that girls aren't welcome at a table. I mean, and, and worse, yeah, <laughs> much things worse, that, right? Yeah, um, I, I love. There's a group that organizes games near me that they they sort of when you sign up, they send out a thing that says uh, says this. It says that um, every player is safe and every character is in danger. <laughs> right. And um, yeah. and I think that that's such a a, a good guide for for game masters to, to be mindful of that, to, to make sure, you know, you're doing the right things that you can control and that when things do happen that you, you address it. And I, I think it's, um, it's imperative for game masters. It's imperative for game shops. Totally. Um, you know, more than one of the horror stories I've heard have been, uh, at a shop that you just go, gosh, I can't believe an owner would be okay with that. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, you totally. know, just purely purely from a a marketing financial perspective, you want as many people to play in the games as you can, you know, and uh and even beyond that, I, I think it's such a great hobby and gift, and to think that people um, don't get to experience it or feel like um not safe when they are experiencing it. it's just a it's a it's definitely a challenge I think for those of us that lead games and those of us that organize games to, uh, to really be mindful of. And I, I would, um, I'd absolutely recommend the whole book is good, but your essay in particular, uh, was something really for, uh, for me to think about and to, um, I think it helped me think through, so if something happens, what do you do? Yeah, You know, how do you address right. it?
2: Right, and that's, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's really that's really what it boils down to is about being proactive and conscientious and, uh, you know, cognizant of your own responsibilities uh, as, you know, the leader you know, of your group of friends, as the game master, as opposed to, you know, trying to make sure that something never happens. Um, you know, the, the essay is not there to say that, you know, you must be perfect, therefore you're a terrible person. No, it's to say that, you know, something will happen. You will probably mess up. And, you know, when you do, here's advice for, uh, for how to handle it. And here's advice, um, to feel like, you know, uh, that you are helping the situation as opposed to making it worse.
1: Yeah. And, and I get great hope from watching younger gamers who, um, who it's just not an issue for them. <laughs> you know, they welcome everybody to their table and, uh, and are palled when somebody wouldn't. And, uh, and it gives me hope for, for the future of gaming, you know, I think yeah. there are voices that uh, we're going to get to hear as they create new adventures that uh, are only going to expand and uh, make greater. You know, the hobby we already have. So yeah,
2: and that's sort of what the uh, what the crux of the concept is is that you know we play role playing games because uh, you know we love living in a shared fantasy world and telling shared stories and uh, you know building. Uh, building a narrative and building memories with our friends and, you know, doing it in a way that um, appeals to, you know, our, our various fandoms, whether it's fantasy or science fantasy or uh, dark fantasy or, you know, whatever system it is that you're playing. Um, and, you know, if if you are playing for that reason, then so is the person beside you. And so is the person, uh, you know, who is too shy to ask to join your game or, you know, that you hear wants to join the game uh, or, you know whatever the the option might be, but you know we all sort of have that that core of uh, of being eager and and wanting to experience uh, the game and have fun with our friends, and you know without thinking about those sort of things, something that starts out being really fun and cool and uh, you know a fun social activity can get really dark and can get really you know harmful to um, somebody who you know, has had uh, something terrible happen to them in the past or comes from a marginalized background or there's a player who's, uh, you know, um, being uh, hurtful to them or, you know, some other type of uh, any of the other types of experiences that are talked about in the essay. And, um, you know, we don't want that. That That is the antithesis of the reason why we play games.
1: I completely agree. And I, I think it's just a it's a call for us to, to continue to to try to what we can do to make make the table open to everybody. And all. uh like you said at the very beginning, all of us can come and have fun, and I think that's a, a huge endeavor for us to to work towards.
2: Right, it's a very simple concept, but a little more nuanced. Uh, you know, when you start unpacking concepts like you know, uh, like privilege and marginalization and things like that.
1: Well, thanks very much for being on today's uh, podcast. Uh, we close by always sort of asking, other than Starfinder, <laughs> what's something you're uh, you're nerding out about?
2: Well, so the season finale of American Gods aired last night. don't know if you're into that series
1: uh yeah so I I have I've watched a couple and then the rest are waiting for me to kind of have some free time so so you've enjoyed the whole series
2: I have yeah um i read the uh so I've been a fan of Neil Gaiman's work for a while um I actually came into him through uh Coraline the book Coraline and then you know later the animated movie and sort of explored some of his comics and things after that um but uh I hadn't read American gods until I heard that the show uh, was going to be picked up by stars. And I thought, Oh wow. I should read this book, you know, to see if I like it and see if this is something, um, you know, that I really want to watch. And uh, my husband had read the book years ago and was really excited, um, particularly about the casting of uh, Ian McShane as Mr. Wednesday. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Right, and I'm a, I'm a big Ian McShane fan. There's a lot of folks at Paizo who are Ian McShane fans um, for very various, various reasons. Um, his body of work sort of speaks for itself. Um, but I read the book, and this it, I got you know uh, just really pulled into the the world that he creates and how clever he is about working uh, the various gods into um, the overall story, and you know the way he per- personifies them and the way they. Uh, interact with the main character and some of the the meaning of um, you know the 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 larger and the more granular meanings of uh, some of the things that happen. Just really interesting and fascinating, and I think he had, he achieved a really um, really admirable um, thing from a storytelling perspective. And then and then I started watching the series, and uh, it opens with the most over the top violence uh, Viking coming to America scene that i think i've seen on tv in a long time um way i mean just way beyond <laughs> most stuff um that you know it was definitely uh achieved the mythological feel that uh, the book i think was going for and so i've just really enjoyed what they've done with the series um the way that they have brought out little uh, threads and pieces that are implied in the book maybe exist in the book in a kernel, but are expanded much more in the series. Um, there's things that they've added. There's storylines that they've um, picked up and expanded that I just really think they've done an excellent job overall.
1: Yeah, the danger of a series like that based on uh, you know another property is that it it runs the risk of being too locked into what's on the text. And I think in this case, stars has done a really good job of Taking some ideas and some things that are there, and then expanding in places and yeah. contracting in others—it's a—it's definitely a, a, an excellent, um, an excellent show. So I'm not—I'm not surprised to hear you're—you're you're kind of uh, nerding out about it.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'm—I'm I'm pretty excited, and um, you know, I was a little skeptical, when I had heard that the first season was going to end at House on the Rock, which is you know what a third of the way through the actual novel. And, uh, I was thinking, is there really that much, you know, it's a dense book, but is there really that much material to fill a whole season, you know, eight episodes of TV in a third of a book? And it turns out <laughs> there really, there really is.
1: Yeah. And, and not surprisingly, I think they announced in the last few days that they've already optioned yeah. and picked up season two. So,
2: yeah. So I'm just, I'm really excited with some of the things that they're doing and uh, some of the updates that have happened. Um, you know, there's a, there's the technology God, of course, uh, who's updated, I think really cleverly for the series. Um, they've uh, really expanded the storylines of some characters that are really just kind of background characters in the book where you know, who aren't fully fleshed, <laughs> fleshed out. And the irony of that is one of them is of course the main character's uh, wife, who is uh, basically a zombie. Um, she sort of, you know, as you probably have seen starts to get uh, a lot of her own storyline that, uh, you know, is an extrapolation of what happens in the book.
1: So yeah, if you've never read the book, you should uh, check out Neil Gaiman's uh American gods. And then the series on stars.
2: Yeah, for sure.
1: Well, again, Amanda, thank you so much for being, uh, being uh, on this episode and, uh, really grateful for all the work you guys do, especially for Starfinder, as uh, we, uh, we can't wait for that August release.
2: Well, that's exciting. I, I hope that you find it interesting.
1: <laughs> yeah. We're, uh, we're really excited and I'm assuredly, uh, looking forward to playing it. Uh, awesome. Thank you so much.
2: Yeah. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to The Drift, a Starfinder podcast presented by Nerds on Earth. Our theme music is a product of our amazing audio engineer, Andrew Danielson. You can learn more about his work at Danielsonsound.com. Thanks again to Amanda hammond Coons, who you can follow on Twitter, at Amanda Hammond. Next time, we're going to get an update on all the current Starfinder news, as there has been a flurry of news and information that has come out of Paizo about Starfinder.